pudgy penguins, bored apes, crypto kitties, and punks, a hipster Noah's Ark, and the latest trend for folks to get rich. I'm talking about NFTs, non-fungible tokens, digital proof of ownership for pretty much anything, a tweet, a work of art, even this podcast episode. It might seem like a fad, but billions of dollars for NFTs exchanged in this past year alone don't lie. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. Today, we get into the NFT trend. How exactly are people making millions of dollars off these digital doodads? And how can I get my hands on some? We talk to LA Times business reporter Sam Dean about the phenomenon. And we also speak with young men who've made more money off NFTs since this conversation started than I could ever hope to earn in a thousand lifetimes. And we also have an update about a Haitian refugee who told us his story last week. It'll be at the end of this episode. Sam Dean is a business reporter for the Los Angeles Times. He'll probably go down in history as the writer who exposed the real origin story of Flaming Hot Cheetos. But he's also followed the trajectory of NFTs from when they were some William Shatner plaything, no, seriously, to a serious investment opportunity. It's now attracting tech bros and celebrities like NBA superstar Steph Curry. Sam, welcome to the Times. Happy to be here. At the risk of sounding incredibly old and even more uncool than I actually am, what on earth are NFTs and how do I get some? Well, they're, they're basically digital watermarks. They're kind of like a, a proof of ownership code um, for a digital artwork, or it could be anything. It could be for the moon. I mean, you can kind of link anything to it, but it's a little digital file that's stored on the blockchain. Uh, so it's this kind of infinite spreadsheet that anyone can check. And you need cryptocurrency uh, to buy them. In, in most cases, it's Ether, um, which is on the Ethereum blockchain. It's kind of like a Bitcoin-adjacent type of, of cryptocurrency. And yeah, you, you get some Ether. You can exchange dollars for them. You can sell some other stuff to try to get Ether. Uh, and then you go on one of these exchanges for NFTs. There's all these marketplace websites and you just bid on them. Sometimes you can like buy now. It's like eBay. You know, you can bid in an auction, you can buy now. And then you get this little token, which is attached to usually a digital artwork. And that's it. <laughs> so what gives an NFT value? How are people determining if they're bidding it? But what, what, what gives it the worth of something? It seems also arbitrary. Yeah, well, there's two. I mean, if you, it is fundamentally arbitrary. Uh, you know, the the true crypto people will say all value is arbitrary. You know, why is a dollar worth a dollar, et cetera? Oh, gosh, are they existentialists or something? I mean, they are. They're kind of like libertarian crypto existentialists. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, honestly. But, uh, you know, the uh, it's it's kind of just the market gives it the value. It is, they say that it's because they're, they're supposedly rare or unique. You know, these NFTs are non-fungible, which means they can't be swapped for something else. Like, they are a unique marker uh, of something. Uh, often it'll be, it's like a print of a photo, like from an artist or something like that. So it'll be like one out of a series of five of these NFTs of a picture of, you know, a kind of monkey wearing sunglasses. Uh, and the, they claim that the rarity gives it value. It's always its own thing, but ultimately, you know, like, uh, every rock is kind of unique, but we don't pay millions of dollars for those rocks. So it's really just the market has decided that these are things worth shoveling money into. Uh, and it is, I mean, it's ultimately arbitrary. It's just like people have decided that these are a thing that they'll pay for, so they're paying for them. <laughs> it's kind of, that's it. 
Yeah, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and, well, I only know Bitcoin. Oh, wait, wait, Dogecoin, of course, because, hey, dog money, man. Uh, but digital dollars have been a growing phenomenon for years now. But NFTs, like, why did they become so popular and so fast? Yeah, this really took off uh, at the beginning of this year. I mean, NFTs have been around for a couple years now. There was a thing a couple years ago called CryptoKitties that was like a kind of mini version of this boom where people bought these NFTs of little cats, uh, just images of cats and could kind of pretend that they were playing with the cats. I mean, it was it's as kind of silly as it sounds, but, you know, kind of like uh, Magic the Gathering cards or just baseball cards, that kind of thing. And those those grew to some kind of a very high value very quickly, but then kind of collapsed because not enough people were interested. Uh, this year, at the beginning of the year, end of last year, people just started getting more into it. I think the, the easiest kind of mass psychological explanation is just COVID cabin fever. You know, people just had a lot of extra money sloshing around if they had money in the, you know, in the stock market. Um, crypto had gone up over the year. And so people just saw it as something fun to spend it on. And the most cynical explanation of this whole phenomenon is that people who are already, you know, crypto whales who hold a ton of cryptocurrency, specifically in this case, uh, Ether, but, you know, it, these cryptocurrencies can be exchanged for each other. So Bitcoin, Ether, you know, uh, they they just see this as a way to kind of juice the market because now it's getting a lot of people who aren't deep cryptocurrency heads uh, to invest in this stuff because it seems cool and fun and they see it as a way to make money. And the more users you can get into an experience, the more people you can get using a currency, the more value it ends up having. So it is kind of this uh, you know, self-perpetuating system of people who are huge investors in these cryptocurrencies getting people looped into the system by this kind of fun, frothy investment market. It sounds like Candyland in the stock market change. And, but we're talking about real money. There was one, and you're going to know this, uh, wasn't one sold for like $65 million during an art auction in one of the big art houses, something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy Beeple, who makes like a, a painting a day or, you know, a digital painting a day for the last couple of years, uh, he sold something for around that much. And then a set of bored ape NFTs, uh, which are literally just kind of pictures of bored looking apes wearing funny costumes, uh, <laughs> uh, sold for $24.4 million at Sotheby's at an online auction. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the money's the money's real. And, and this goes, I mean, you know, there's now a ton of people making these things. Some are just individual artists who throw up a painting uh, or like a little digital image and they'll make 500 bucks or something like that, uh, where before they could sell it, you know, sitting on the sidewalk for 10 bucks if someone happened to walk by. And then it goes up to these things that are these real kind of confusing and, and, and large-scale speculative assets that sell for millions of dollars. We'll be back after this break. So NFTs to me seem like just a collectible. They're expensive because people say they're expensive. It happened with tulips in the Netherlands in the 17th century. It happened with baseball cards when we were growing up in the 1980s. It seems to me like Funko dolls, like those big cutesy dolls of everything. They're all waves of speculative bubbles. What's different this time with NFTs besides the fact that it's all digital? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, ultimately this, the value proposition is the same. It is this kind of collectible craze. Uh, right now, people think that they seem like a real investment asset uh, in the same way that people probably did for baseball cards or tulips at one point because the prices seem to keep going up and more and more people keep piling into the space because they see prices going up. Um, but fundamentally, there's nothing different about it in a macro level. I think what's happening is that um, people have 
kind of money to burn <laughs> in a different way. And there is a little bit of a community thing. Like people, you know, buy these bored ape things. They buy different animal icons and then they're a part of this little community. And people are starting to build extra things on top of NFTs. So it's like, if you buy this one, then you can basically play this game. It's like you have a token in a board game or something like that. But that doesn't really explain why they're, why they're so valuable. It's really, uh, I think the thing that's supercharged it is that it's a speculative bubble built on top of another speculative bubble. So it's kind of a second order thing built on top of cryptocurrency. And so because there's so many people trying to get cryptocurrency to uh, increase in value and become more of a legitimate thing, that incentivizes people to, to invest in these art holdings and these NFTs to try and prove that it's real, kind of, if that makes sense. So it's like, it's just a double order. So it's kind of uh, even more hyped. I said Candyland earlier, I meant Farmville because all we're talking about uh, bored apes and pudgy penguins and whales too and like kitties what's with the whole thing about these animals and people who sell these or collect these put them as profile photos on twitter and even other cutesy animals yeah it's something that's taken off especially in the last uh you know couple months uh but it, it also calls back to the first nft uh, little bubble of of uh, crypto kitties. But yeah, it's just kind of like, uh, I mean, I guess you could you could think of it as the same way that people who all own, you know, kind of like souped up Dodge Chargers, like having pictures of souped up Dodge Chargers <laughs> in their profile photo. You know, it's just like you're part of a club and you paid a bunch of money for something. And that's kind of it. It's just this kind of like little community where you get to feel like you're getting social value out of this random, you know, file that you bought. <laughs> Will I get beat up by board apes if I put up a board ape on my uh, Twitter feed, even though I don't own a board ape? You know, I was I was trying to figure that out if there is like a real punishment uh, mechanism in place. Because yeah, what is funny about this is that you could just, you know, right click and copy any photo of a board ape and put it in your profile picture. Ultimately, if someone really pressed you, they could make you prove that you've bought one because the blockchain is all public on some level. But you could always just be like, well, I bought it anonymously. Leave me alone. I'm definitely in the club. So it's really kind of like a very shaky system. It's interesting because in some ways, a lot of hype and you talk to these people, they make it seem like NFTs can cure all the world's ills or at least make you a multimillionaire. And one fascinating possibility, at least to acolytes, is that this is a way to democratize the world, especially the art world, especially the collectible world. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that a bunch of artists who otherwise were not making any money making art now are, you know, like people are making money that weren't before. Uh, and so in that sense, it is. I mean, people who, you know, haven't gone to a fancy MFA program don't know a fancy gallerist in, in L.A. or New York uh, or Berlin or Singapore, you know, are, are selling art um, for quantities that they couldn't have ever imagined before. So in that sense, at the basic, you know, creator level, people are making money. Uh, but as far as democratizing the art world, you know, these images would have been freely available online. Anyway, I guess you could say that the money is incentivizing their creation. So there is more art being produced in this, this kind of genre of NFT art. But ultimately, the market itself is speculative in the same way as the fine art world. You know, it's like, uh, why is a Vermeer worth so much money? It's kind of because people have agreed that it's worth that much money and it's a good hold of value. And so you can put it in a kind of uh, Swiss warehouse and, and sell it in a couple years and make more money. It's, it's a similar kind of thing. So it depends what you think of as the art world. Uh, the art market now has a lot more participants for sure. And artists are making more money, but it's not like, uh, I don't know, this is like a springtime for creativity necessarily. And people could laugh all they want. I mean, they, people have been scoffing at Bitcoin and cryptocurrency for years. And now the U.S. Federal Reserve is looking at regulating digital because they know it's a thing. So what's the future that you see for NFTs? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting moment. I mean, like El Salvador just declared Bitcoin a, a co-official currency with the U.S. dollar. You know, it's like these things are taking off in interesting ways. For NFTs, it's, um, I mean, the, the Chinese Communist Party put out a warning uh, saying that NFTs are obviously a speculative bubble and the value will decrease. <laughs> They're a little bearish on crypto uh, in the CCP. Another animal, bear. Yeah, exactly. Uh so for NFTs now, I mean, they're really just kind of a, a collectible asset. Uh, and maybe it's a bubble. Maybe somehow there will just be enough people into this for long enough that it kind of self-sustains. I mean, it's it's really just hard to say. It, it really is speculative, though. And as far as on the regulatory side, though, the there hasn't been much talk of regulating NFTs themselves because they are uh, just kind of little objects. They're, they're like assets. They're not securities in the sense that you know, um, stocks and bonds and stuff like that are. Although there is an interesting wrinkle that some people are starting to build in kind of investment-like and interest-like features into some of these kind of clubs of NFTs. So that might actually bring SEC scrutiny onto them. Also, you have to pay taxes, uh, (laughs) which I think a lot of people haven't thought about, but, uh, you know, will become an issue and will become a big dilemma for people who think that they're anonymous, but they kind of, I don't don't know if they want to risk trying to squeak by the IRS. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how tax season goes next year. IRS always harshes the fun that people create for themselves. (laughs) Sam, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. For the past five years, Cooper Turley and Tim Kang have followed all the latest trends that have come out of the blockchain, delving deep into the world of crypto and NFTs. They've invested in everything from Bitcoin and Bored Apes to CryptoPunks and Pudgy Penguins. And sure, yeah, they've lost big some of the time, but they've also managed to make a huge return on their investments, enough to live in a nice house, at least one nicer than mine. So the Times producer, Marina Peña, went up there to talk to them. And they told her why they started investing in NFTs and what makes them so bullish on these digital tokens. Here's Cooper. I went to school for music business, um, was very deep into different economies like Pokemon cards, trading cards, music curation. Um, Coming in out of college, I wanted to find a new opportunity to really explore entrepreneurship and try and find a very creative industry to do that in. So I fell into crypto. Um, It was a very self-taught industry. I learned a lot about things like NFTs and I've spent the past five years trying to figure out where are the most valuable things in crypto? How do I learn about what they are in a deep level and then take those topics and help other people learn about them themselves? I studied computer science and business in college. And after graduating, I started working for a bank. Um, and after starting to save some money, I, I was always taught that I needed to invest early. And I went down the rabbit hole of cryptocurrency. I discovered Ethereum. Um, realized that smart contracts were a way to really empower the world um, and shift the paradigm of how business operates. And so um, I, would, I just got really excited about it. And um, for the past four, four or five years, I've just been purely looking at it from a financial perspective because most of the things that were launched were kind of financial products, de- decentralized finance. Um, it was only until NFTs that I finally got excited again um, because it now was able to place value um, on culture, on artistry, on creative work. And so um, it's something that I've been waiting for so long. The 
The very first NFT that I bought was CryptoKitties back in 2017. This was the first inflection points for NFT in the industry at large. You had these virtual cats on a blockchain that you could breed together to create new virtual assets. You know, at that point in time, it clogged up the entire Ethereum network. It was all that anyone was talking about. You know, I was brand new at the time. I was still learning. And so truthfully, I got wrecked on CryptoKitties. I bought about 20 of them, made no money off of it, lost basically all the money I invested into it and still hold those same cats today. But it was a fun experience. You know, I was purchasing them off something like an open sea marketplace. I was learning how to use MetaMask. I was learning how to buy things with Ether and really just going through the motions of it. You know, over the next couple of years, I started collecting things called POPs, which represented NFTs of IRL or digital events. So I would go to an Ethereum conference somewhere around the world. Uh, you would show up to that event and you would get a QR code that would allow you to collect an NFT based on your attendance to that event. And so I started to collect things that were more relevant to my cultural experience, more so than my financial experience. So the first NFT that I bought was um, a piece on Super Rare by Murat Pak. And that experience was just kind of mind-blowing. At first, I just kind of saw it for face value. I was like, oh, this is on Ethereum. This is like an NFT. This is something I could buy and own. But only until I actually went through the process and purchased it and, and felt like I actually owned it. Um, that's just something that's really inherent and native to cryptocurrency and having custody and having control over your own assets. And so I was hooked and I really thought that it was uh, something that could really shape our future. I own quite a bit of uh, NFTs. I started out collecting a ton of digital art because the most exciting thing was really empowering creatives and putting value into these these creatives' hands. And um, but I also have like a, a handful of um, collectibles, um, including one CryptoPunk, um, MeBits, uh, Board Ape Yacht Clubs, uh, Apes. And the reason that I purchased those were because of the culture and the community behind it. I have one CryptoPunk, which I got for one Ether or $300 at the time, that is now worth roughly 350 grand at, at today's prices. I have one Bored Ape, which was gifted to me by Tim himself. I have a bunch of music NFTs. Um, music NFTs are my way of sort of giving back to the industry that was started. I would say in total, I've probably invested close to $100,000 across all of the NFTs that I've collected so far to date. I've had close to a little over a quarter of a million dollars worth of sales so far. And then I'd say my existing collection is probably valued at roughly a million dollars. Getting into something early provides a lot of opportunity, but um, it's really dependent on, on the future of the project and, and the community behind it and, and how people perceive it um, that really grows, grows an NFT's value. My goal with NFT collecting is more so to be present and active in conversations around culture. And so most of the time, you really only need one NFT from each class to be able to enter those chat rooms and conversations. And so my strategy has been much more around curating the culture, you know, maybe buying a couple assets here or there if I'm very excited about it. In the context of a project, uh, you look at the team, like who's behind the team? Like, are they delivering value? Do they work hard? Are they, you know... Are they leaders in the community? Um, what are they going to do afterwards? Um, I really look at the people um, behind it and also the community behind it. The, 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 there's their supporters, their group of collectors. Um, are they super excited? Are they? What what are their perspectives? Are 
what exactly are they placing their faith in? A lot of the trading that I do is looking to make those longer term bets in NFTs that I believe will have value over five to 10 year time horizon. But I would say that every NFT is very different from one another. My general thesis is to trade on gut instinct. And typically I invest very um, freely on the back of what my friends are investing in because I think that gives a high signal to something that will be valuable in the future. Projects and NFTs and that have um, historical significance or are very innovative are um, definitely something that are special and something to, to buy. Um, when I first saw the Board Ape Yacht Club project, what they did was promise a lot of uh, future community building and, and value um, and, and a future roadmap, basically. And so um, they're one of the first to really do that. And um, at the time, you don't really know whether that they would deliver or not. But, you know, six, five months later, we see the community being just incredibly um, resilient and strong and exciting. And so, um, you know, I think looking at these projects and artworks, um, when you see something very refreshing and new, that might actually have uh, quite a big historical impact. By changing your profile picture to one of these NFTs, you are signaling that you believe strongly in that specific community. And you're also showing everyone else that I have shared skin and ownership in that collection. And so what's attractive about these different communities that each one of them has a very unique group of community members. CryptoPunks holders are typically very early to crypto. They've been very successful. Um, Board Ape Yacht Club was a completely new asset class where a lot of those collectors made the vast majority of their NFT wealth on the back of that series. And so there's now a sentimental relationship with Board Apes that signals culture, it signals new money, it signals new interest and excitement. There was an NFT collection called Pudgy Penguins, and what people say about them is that they're just incredibly cute, you know? And that's just such a, a, an appealing aspect of these collectibles. You'll typically notice that the more uh, cute the asset is, typically the lower entry point it is. It's a way for people to join the Avatar game at a lower cost of entry. You know, I will still note that typically pudgy penguins are still roughly like $5,000. Cool cats are still like anywhere from 15 to 20 grand. So these assets are not cheap, but what they are is they show that you are very serious about this industry. When someone does well with NFTs or they share their position or they share their asset, the community is very open arms about congratulating them for that. And I think that virtue signaling around the ability for anyone to have a life-changing opportunity on the back of minting an NFT is extremely addicting. And that's why I think we're seeing so much excitement and interest in this industry today. People kind of speculate on what's to come. Um, a lot of people do focus a lot on the value and where people think the value is going to be. And um, that's cool and all, but that's kind of surface level, in my opinion. Uh, what really is the driver of value is um, what is going to build on top of um, an NFT and, and, a, and a community and an artist. And so the discussions that are happening in Discord, that's really more um, about innovation and building is more intriguing and, and interesting to me. When you look at it, something like the music industry, we are going to see a lot of work around songs being tokenized as NFTs, albums being tokenized as NFTs, master royalty rights being tokenized as NFTs. And what this means is as a fan of an artist, I can collect an NFT that not only represents social capital, so it looks or feels kind of like a t-shirt or a digital vinyl, it actually has ownership rights over the future royalties earned by that artist. 
And so it becomes multidimensional in the fact that you can signal that you are a super fan because you hold an NFT, but you can now have an asset that has on-chain cash rights, which means that you're earning income on a recurring basis on the back of holding this social asset. And I think relative to the other aspects of crypto, NFTs are unique because you know people understand the notion of collecting something online. They've bought in albums before, they've bought in t-shirts, they've collected show tickets before. And so making that digital, you know, once that click happens for people, I think we're going to start to see some really exciting experiments around true ownership of digital assets. Yeah, so NFTs operate on a public blockchain. So what that allows is just um, a public access of a database. And so um, when you look at a deed to a house or a a title to your car, if that was um, a public record, um, which they already are, but on kind of like centralized, um, more inefficient systems, um, using something that is more interoperable, easily accessible, and um, everyone kind of agrees on a standard um, that will just inherently make the world operate more efficiently. And so um, applying NFTs to healthcare records, um, just honestly anything, just anything can be tokenized and um, made as an NFT. And so um, the use cases right now, as we're seeing, are very, very um, primitive. It's just, um, you know, artworks or collect or these uh, art collectibles. But um, as we dig deeper, as we innovate, um, this technology has the, the power to really change the world across all industries. I think NFTs can be risky if you're looking at it very speculatively as a way to just profit. Um, like this technology has far more um, far-reaching implications like um, ticket sales. Like um, there can be a ticket that you get to a concert and that NFT can be used for multiple concerts in the future. And there can be added data to that token that you know proves that you've attended these concerts and then this could eventually just roll out into a, like a membership or like a loyalty program or something. And so, you know, NFTs don't have to be just something to speculate on. It can just be something as basic as a, as a ticket to a concert that, um, that just has far more um, utility and application. And so, yes, they are risky, but at the same time, it's a game-changing technology. Hey, this is Gustavo. Last week, we released a series on border camps, and at the end of the Del Rio episode, LA Times reporter Molly Hennessy Fisk spoke with Claudie. He's a Haitian refugee who told her then that he was experiencing suicidal thoughts because he couldn't imagine going back to Haiti after everything he had been through to get to the U.S. We have an update on his story and wanted to share it with you. After visiting the Haitian migrant camp this week on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande, I came back to Del Rio, Texas, and visited the only migrant shelter in town. And I was standing with a line of migrants who had just been released by the Border Patrol, talking to them when a man came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Molly, do you remember me from the camp? And I looked around and it was cloudy. So Claudie, where are you now? I'm in Texas, America. 
and I hugged him and I said, I'm so glad to see you. I was worried about you because he had been so emotional and feeling suicidal when he was in the camp. And he led me over to meet his partner, her two-year-old son. She's pregnant. So you made it with your yeah, wife? Yeah, I made it with my wife and, your, and my son. Your son. Yeah. He had been released to go join relatives in Miami. And he told me that he was feeling a lot better. He showed me the paperwork he'd received with a notice to report to immigration authorities in Miami. He had been fitted with an ankle monitor. He said officials didn't tell him why he got a notice to report to immigration officials instead of a notice to appear in immigration court, which some of the other migrants in line had received who had been released. He wasn't sure why he had received an ankle monitor, but he said he didn't mind. He was just overjoyed that he had been able to get released. And I know you said there were other migrants, Cuban migrants, who offered buy your ticket from you that allowed you to get on the bus. Why didn't you sell your ticket? He said when he was still at the camp, migrants were buying these numbered and color-coded tickets that allowed them to get released. People were buying tickets with higher numbers, thinking that would allow them to stay at the camp longer and figure out whether they were going to get deported or not and maybe go back to Mexico if they were. Some other migrants tried to buy Cloudy's ticket, but he said he refused because he believed that his ticket was his blessing and he had prayed for his safety. And it turned out that it was. Because I told them that's my blessing. The number that, you know, the border police gave me, that's the number I would get to America. So I didn't want to give it to them. So yeah. what would you tell other migrants? What do you want other migrants in the camp to know who are still waiting and don't know what to do? I would love them to stay there, not going back to Mexico. Yeah. Why? Because they, 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 might, they, they might get a chance too. Like I get the chance, they might get a chance. Yeah. And I know there was a time when you were very desperate at the camp. Yeah, to be honest, too. Uh, no, because I don't know what I'm going to do in Haiti if I was get deported. So, like I said, there's no life in Haiti. So, so what would you like the government here or the people who control who gets deported and who doesn't to know about the situation? Would you like them to change the way they're handling things? Yeah, I would love to. You know, just you know, have com- compassion for for you know for for the Haitian people, because we have been going to a lot in Haiti. We don't have president and, you know, a lot of illegal guns in Haiti. People have been killing a lot in Haiti. So, yeah, I would love them to, you know, have compassion for us. The Del Rio border where Claudia and others stayed no longer exists, according to authorities. The U.S. expelled thousands of Haitians last week and let thousands of others officially stay in the country, for now. 5,000 of those remain in federal custody. They'll be allowed to make their case before an immigration judge to remain in this country. But if they're denied, these migrants will be deported. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, the life and death of the American Jewish deli. It's good and it's still sad. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, Marina Peña, and Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. 
I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this Madrid. Gracias. <laughs>